This is the first part of a lengthy interview I did with Matt Colvin, who I've interviewed before on this podcast. And it's a great conversation on divorce and remarriage and the Apostle Paul and all things related to that. But it was such a good conversation that it actually went really long, so we actually split it into two pieces. So this is the first part that we're going to release, and then next week we'll give the second part to this interview. So if this ends uh, seemingly abruptly, hopefully it isn't too abrupt, that's the reason why there's a part two coming, so stay tuned for that. But for now, enjoy part one of my interview with Matt Colvin. You're listening to That'll Preach. This is Brian. We've got an interview lined up today uh, with someone who has been on our show before. If you want to check out some of his, uh, some of the other interviews we did with him, we're going to put the links in our show notes. But we're really happy to have back with us Matt Colvin. Matt Colvin is a priest in the REC, the Reformed Episcopal Church, and he teaches at the Davenant Institute. Um, I took a class with him. He was a fantastic teacher, really interesting stuff. If you want a distilled version, a little foretaste, again, the interview I did with him a while back covers some of that material. But uh, Matt is a provocative thinker, but also a great conversationalist and somebody that uh, I think has a lot of beneficial insights into scripture. So, Matt, thank you for being on with us again. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. It's a privilege. So, Matt, I, uh, I, was, I was lurking through Twitter. And this is going to lead into what I'd love to pick your brain about, uh, because you had responded to a tweet by uh, Post Bardian, who uh, Post Bardian, he, uh, post, he tweeted this. Why is it so difficult for Christians to accept that Paul abandoned his wife when he converted to Christianity? To which you responded, you think that's plausible and you hold to Daub's understanding of 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, saying it doesn't permit divorce, rather a marriage is perished uh, by the new birth of the believing spouse and has not been renewed because the other has refused to live with him. So that's a fascinating, so 1 Corinthians 7, we've actually, um, you know, in our church, we've talked through like, what's our policy on divorce? What, how do we think about remarriage and all these things? And 1 Corinthians 7 is a very contested battlefield in that arena. And this is a very interesting new wrinkle in this. So maybe just, you know, open up for us um, what what kind of got you on this uh, on this trek? We could maybe if you even want to read the, the relevant section uh, sure. about it. Um, so, yeah, I'd invite anyone listening to sort of turn to First Corinthians 7, uh, where Paul is talking to um Believers who uh, have found themselves suddenly in um, a mixed marriage. Um, they have converted and their spouse has not. Um, and uh, I'll just start here in 7, 8. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to translate very literally from the Greek here. Um, but I say to the unmarried, um, some manuscripts have, and to widows, um, it's good for them if they remain as also I remain. So Paul is in a state, and he says it would be good for other people to be in that state too. Um, but if they don't have self-control, um, let them marry, 
for it's better to marry than to burn. Uh, but to those uh, who have married, uh, they're in a perfect state, they've entered into a marriage. Um, I instruct, not I, but the Lord, and that's Paul's way of saying, I actually have a commandment from the mouth of Jesus that I'm relaying to you. And this is dominical instruction. Um, so not I, but the Lord, um, that a, a wife should not separate um, or literally be separated, it's an eros passive, from her husband. Uh, note that it, it uses kodisthenai, um, which isn't necessarily a technical word for divorce, um, because, of course, Paul, as a Jew, is probably thinking in rather Jewish terms about divorce. Um, and in Judaism, husbands are the ones who have to issue a bill of divorce to the wife. The wife has no ability to do that. She might be able to go to a court and have the court compel her husband to issue a bill of divorce. But divorce, properly speaking, in Judaism is something that um, husbands do to wives, not the other way around. Not so, however, in, um, Greco in the Greco-Roman world. Greek law, Roman law, yes, you can have wives initiating divorces. However, Paul uses this separate from her husband. Um, and if she, but if she does separate, let her remain unmarried or else let her be reconciled to her husband. Uh, note, of course, that within Jewish law, you're not supposed to return to your own husband if you've been if you've slept with someone else or you're married to someone else in the meantime. Um, Jewish law prohibits uh, sort of temporary divorces or wife sharing by means of divorce. Um, once once you've given a, a bill of divorce, which is in the formula, behold, you are permitted to any man. More on that shortly. Hmm. Um, that speaks to what what is the conception of marriage? Uh, it means this woman belongs to this man uh, exclusively, especially in Old Testament Judaism where we've got polygamous marriages. Um, that's the formula, right? Uh, that this woman belongs exclusively to this man. Not necessarily the other way around. If you have a man like Elkanah or um, Jacob with more than one wife. All right, so let her be reconciled to her husband. Um, and, and then it says, the husband is not to divorce his wife. And here it uses what is a technical term for divorce, afhi and I, literally to cast away. Mm. Um, so husbands are not to divorce wives and wives are not to um, separate. From their husbands, so there it's as, it, it, there's it's asymmetrical. There's the yes. the, the wife is separating. She doesn't have under the Jewish mindset the ability to actually divorce, but she can temporarily, perhaps, remove herself. Oh, but yeah. she, she, but she should not do that, that though. We, we but, see that in, right. in in for instance judges where we've got that Levite's concubine and um, he's been mistreating her and she runs away and goes back to her father's house. And he comes and he speaks gently to her and persuades her to come back. Um, but yeah, that's, and that, of course, we're going to, I assume that this conversation is going to get into how do okay. we apply this to our current yeah. 
loose divorce regime in yeah. late modern late modern capitalist western society yes um, we are going to get there <laughs> yes but because uh, i know there'll be pastors listening to this show um perhaps yourself have uh divorced and remarried people in your congregations so um it isn't going to be easy to apply rules that come from a society in which Jewish marriage law is kind of the basis for then Christian marriage law. Mm. Uh, and it was uh, a real bombshell dropped on the very loose marriage law of Greco-Roman society. I, I think it was um, Rodney Stark's Triumph of Christianity was talking about how, how did marriage go down in the first century Roman world uh, talks about Cicero's daughter, Tolia, uh, that she was you know, married at 15 and then divorced by 19, married again at 24 and hmm. divorced again. And, and anyway, dead in childbirth by age 31 or something ridiculous. Um, Roman brides marrying really young, much younger than Christian brides. And uh, because of the terrible sex imbalance of Roman society that you have, um, in some some cases, as much as 120 men for every woman because wow. of selective, selective yeah. infanticide. Right? Yeah, yeah. You know, we've got these letters, and I think um, Stark reproduces a letter from a, uh, a Roman I think it was a senator uh, writing. He's on away on travel, and he writes to his wife and says, "I hear that you are to be delivered of a child. Um, you know, may may the gods smile upon us. Uh, if it is a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, do away with it." Hmm. I, I the mind kind of boggles. Yeah. What what would a mother think? Yeah. Um, on receiving a, a command of that sort from a husband in a society where she doesn't really have any power um, to thwart her husband's wishes in that regard. Mm. So uh, that's important for us to remember that we're, we're swimming in egalitarian and largely feminist societies. That's the water that, of our fishbowl. That's not the water of Paul's fishbowl. Um, yeah. He's speaking into... Um, a severely patriarchal, um, we would characterize much of Roman society as abusive um, of women. Mm. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why women converted in droves to Christianity. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. All right, but let's go back to yeah. Um, yeah. chapter 7, verse 12. Mm -hmm. But to the rest, uh, not talking now to the unmarried and to widows, um, to the rest, I say, not the Lord. I, not the Lord. Uh, now, what we make of that? You've you've had a class with me. I think we talked about church government and the Shalayot concept. Yeah, right. Um, the idea of apostleship being that the apostle fully represents um, his sender, his principal, um, his Meshaliach. And so Paul speaks for Jesus. Um, he's when he says here, I say, not the Lord, he doesn't mean this isn't authoritative or this is just advice. Mm -hmm. He means I'm still giving apostolic commandments to you. This is still my ruling and you need to obey it. 
It's just that this time it's not a dominical quotation. He's not relaying something Jesus said. He's speaking um, in his own capacity as um, Jesus's representative. Um, so that's how I take that phrase. Uh, if some brother has a gunaika apiston, an unbelieving um, wife, uh, it doesn't mean an unfaithful wife, although apistos could be translated that way. It means an unbelieving wife, um, someone who has not converted to Christianity. And she is well pleased to dwell with him. Let him not divorce her. Okay. And a wife, if some wife has an unbelieving husband, and this one is well pleased to dwell with her, let, he, let her not divorce her husband. Now using the term for divorce. Interesting. Um, so presumably using Greco-Roman divorce law, uh, he has in mind some Gentile, Gentile Christian wife uh, employing those um, rules to divorce her husband. And now here comes the puzzling verse, which has spawned so much confusion in systematic theology as it's been abused in treatments of baptism. It's been used as, <laughs> I hate to say it, a bad argument for pedo-baptism, <laughs> mm. um, even though I'm a pedo-baptist. <clears throat> Why should she not um, divorce her husband? For the unbelieving husband is in a state of having been sanctified, hegiastai, imperfect, in the wife or by the wife. I'm using that N-Tegunaiki, which, by the way, I would characterize as a Semitism. This is probably rendering a Hebrew or Aramaic B, right? that, that all-purpose prepositional prefix that they like to use, and it, it can mean with, by, in, mm. I mean, all kinds of things. Um, so the unbelieving husband is sanctified in his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified in the brother using brother as a way of speaking of a Christian believer. Mm -hmm. And then we get a contrafactual. Um, I should, maybe I should, I should not go on yet. Let's talk a little bit more about first half of 14. So what's it mean sanctified? <laughs> Does that mean in increasing in good habits and virtues, you know, making progress and sanctification? Right. Well, presumably not. Those are benefits that you have in union with Christ, just like your justification or your glorification right. or your future resurrection. And if you're an unbeliever, you don't have that stuff. Um, so what is it? Some sort of um, treatment of the unbeliever as sort of under the umbrella of the believer's state of holiness, that the believer belongs to God. And so God sort of winks at his um unbelieving wife's or her unbelieving husband's unfaithfulness or disobedience and unbelief um, just sort of turns a blind eye to it because um, there's a believer in the household. Um, suffice to say, both of those are very challenging ideas, mm -hmm. very difficult to find any evidence for them in the rest of the Bible. Certainly, we can find sort of corporate judgment like God uh, appearing to Abraham and telling him, I'm, hey, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham pleading with him and bargaining it down to try to get him to spare the whole city if there can be found you know, increasingly tiny numbers of righteous people in it, all the way down to 10. Um, 
but that I don't see a whole lot of contextual evidence or verbal echoes to make us think that that's what's going on. And so um, the sanctification in question um, is a bit of a puzzle. Um, so it, after the semicolon in that verse, that embarks on a contrafactual. Otherwise, or since otherwise, your children would be unclean, akathata, impure. Same word used for people who have leprosy, the woman with the bleeding, uh, sneaks up behind Jesus and touches his robe. Um, also used for evil spirits that are possessing people um, when Jesus commands them to come out and exercises them. He will address them as um, pneuma akathoton, uh, impure or unclean spirit. So your children would be unclean. But as it is, Nunde, returning from the contrafactual back to what's really the case, as it is, they are holy. Um, so children are holy, even though one of their parents doesn't believe, just because the other one does. Um, and you can find lots of Presbyterian materials and Anglican materials, for that matter, arguing that, yeah, they are considered to be in the covenant uh, and of the holy seed and belong to Israel and they're grafted into Christ in virtue of the one believing parent and they ought to receive baptism. Well, I don't necessarily object to baptizing the children of a single believer, I'm all in favor of baptizing as many people as we can, uh, if we have a reason to think they will receive covenant nurture and be trained in the faith and um, grow to be uh, members of the church. Uh, I, you know, we don't go by and just spray fire hoses on crowds and hope that the Holy Spirit will sort them out. There's, there needs to be some covenant context and nurture. Um, so. Is that what this is about, um, the, the covenant status of children of one believer and one unbeliever? Hmm. I don't think so. And I don't think that's the impurity that's in question here. Um, so that's all pretty puzzling. And then 15 makes it even more puzzling. But if the unbelieving person separates let him separate. Right. Um, the, the brother is not enslaved or is not bound. The brother or the sister is not bound. And then there's this interesting phrase, en tois toyu tois. And I think most translations say, in such cases. Mm -hmm. It's the ESV says. Yes. However, when we look at the rest of First Corinthians, we find that Paul likes to use this word toyutos, such, and it's ambiguous here, it could be neuter, and that's what's probably assumed by people who think it's in such cases, or it could be masculine, and the brother or sister is not enslaved or bound to such people or by such people. Um, but God has called us to peace. And then verse 16, how do you know, or what do you know, O wife, if you will save your husband? These are translated in English. How do you know whether you will save your husband? Um, or how do you know, O husband, if you will save your wife? Um, 
And I think the English-speaking ear tends to hear that question, the pair of questions in chapter in verse 16 of chapter 7. We tend to hear it as discouraging, right? Well, how do you know? Probably won't happen. Um, but that's that's actually not the way that phrase is used to hmm. the Jewish ear. How, who can tell and how do you know these kinds of questions are usually optimistic. So I mentioned in Jonah chapter 3, when the king of Nineveh hears the preaching of Jonah, he is cut to the heart and proclaims a day of repentance. And he says, well, we should all dress in sackcloth and don't eat or drink and put sackcloth on our animals too. And turn from our evil ways and the violence that's in our hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn from the way from his fierce, fierce anger so that we may not perish? Um, or again, um, when Mordecai talks to Esther in Esther chapter 4, who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this? You probably have. Hmm. Or the king of Nineveh, God probably will forgive us and turn away from his anger. So I think Paul is suggesting here, you should not divorce. You should not abandon your unbelieving spouse because there's a real chance. Should I as a Calvinist even be using that word? Um, but there's, there's a very good likelihood that in the good pleasure of God, he may use you as an instrument for the conversion of your husband or wife um, who doesn't believe. All right. So that's, in a nutshell, the passage, as I've tried to translate it literally and kind of show what are the issues. Hmm. Now, um, historically, in the medieval period, um, and I don't have all the details on this, I'm just relying on David Dalva's summary, um, the Roman Catholic Church took this passage as the basis for an exception that they allow to their universal ban on divorce based on Jesus's prohibition of divorce in Matthew 19. Um, and they refer to it in Latin as the privilegium, privilegium Paulinum, the Pauline privilege. This is the only time you may divorce your spouse is if they don't convert when you do. You convert and they don't. Okay, you can have a divorce. Um, which that by itself should kind of sit badly with us. Wait, Jesus banned it, and now Paul is reversing that somehow because of this strange little circumstance. And he's reversing it in a passage where he just said in verses 8 to 11, don't separate, don't divorce. Um, and in which he ends the passage in verse 16 with, how do you know you might save your spouse, your, your husband or wife? Um, none of that contextually seems to support the idea that Paul said, oh, okay, your spouse didn't convert with you. You're okay to divorce. Um, everything in the passage seems to encourage staying um, mm. for evangelistic reasons. And so that raises the question of what is Paul actually talking about? Now, before we go on, and please stop me if you've got questions at any moment here. I feel like I've been running my mouth on for a long time here without interruption. But um, before we go on, um, 
I want to acknowledge that what I'm about to propose as a solution to these puzzles is something that has persuaded me most of the way. I'm not entirely sold on it. Like we're dealing with one of the most puzzling passages of the Bible here. So erecting hard and fast doctrines and binding people's consciences and imposing this as church law, those are not things I'm suggesting. Mm -hmm. okay? But I'm approaching this as a Greek scholar trying to figure out what Paul means. And when I see a passage that has so many difficulties, my nose starts twitching and starts smelling around. And what? There must be some missing background. There must be something that's been misunderstood. Mm -hmm. And um, usually when it's a matter of the medieval church, the thing that they've misunderstood or that they don't know is probably the Jewish background uh, that yeah. Paul's writing out of. Um, so I encountered this from David Dalber. Um, he's one of my favorite Bible scholars, uh, was a uh, trained student of rabbinic law and then a teacher at Oxford and then at Berkeley after he fled from Germany uh, before World War II. Uh, so he's not a, not a Christian, hmm. um, but he has a lot of perceptive insights about the New Testament. Um, he's one of the first scholars to seriously try to bring it into contact with Jewish law as it, evidenced by the Mishnah and the Talmuds. Um, so that's what he did with this passage. Um, and he provides a suggestion, namely, it's kind of twofold. The first thing that he points out is that rabbinic law considered conversion to result in a new birth. If you were a proselyte to Judaism, you became a new, cre a new creature. And the mm -hmm. rabbis have a dictum that a proselyte upon his baptism, that's what Mark the break. Right? When you come up from the water of your proselyte baptism, you've purged away the uncleanness of your Gentile life, and you become a Jew. And they say, a proselyte, when he's been baptized, is like a newborn babe. Hmm. It's very reminiscent of Christian language about regeneration or new birth. Right, you right. must be born, born again. And... The rabbinic doctrine on this was that, in theory at least, the proselyte, when he has suddenly been converted to Judaism, all of his relationships that he had from his old life are no more. They have no more legal or ontological status. He is no longer related to his mother, father, sister, etc. Um, any marriage that he had before has been dissolved. Um, automatically, because he's a new person. He's not the same person who was married. And we kind of see Paul using this kind of argument, right? Um, for instance, in Romans, it's kind of the basis for his argument that you're not under the Torah anymore because you've died and mm -hmm. you're a new creature in Christ. So you're not married. You're married to another, um, not to the law anymore. Um, so if if conversion and this new birth idea is powerful enough in Paul's mind that it can even undo or eliminate a Jewish Christian's relationship to the Torah covenant, 
which is like the most powerful and important identity that a Jewish person would have, if it can even eliminate that, then of course it can eliminate any past marriage relationship or parental relationship. So the second second thing that Dalbert points out, he's got that conversion idea first. He says, we see this at work in, in Corinthian, in, in First Corinthians, back in chapter five, where we've got the incestuous man who has his father's wife right, in chapter mm-hmm. five. It is entirely rumored or it is heard among you, porneia, and sexual immorality, and such porneia as does not even happen among the Gentiles. Right. And even, even these depraved Greeks and Romans don't do this, that a man has the wife of his father. So probably not his own mother, but his stepmother. Right? Um, he's married her um, or has her sexually. And then there's this verse, which Belba urges is only comprehensible on the grounds of this new creation doctrine. And you are puffed up like a bullfrog, um, you're proud about it. And you have not rather mourned that the one who has done so, this, this deed should be taken away from your midst. Um, you should be ashamed of it, but you're not ashamed of it. You're puffed up. Um, in other words, the Corinthians think, look what a fine thing our new status, our new birth, our new creation is that we have the ability, even we're so such new creatures, we can even marry our own stepmothers um, without it really being. So that's the filling in Mm -hmm. what's going on. So it's, you often read this and it's just like, oh, this is about church discipline. I mean, what certainly is part of it, but like you think this, this is just a guy who is just oddly perverted in a certain, and certainly there's a perversion here, but but there's something extra where this could have been in the atmosphere where they're going, oh, this is following Jewish teaching. A conversion is a mm-hmm. severing of these former ties. We've been converted into Christ, sever those ties. So that was maybe the soil out of which this kind of sin yeah. grew. In other words, they've got a right idea, but they're running it out to a bad extreme. Mm. And, and they're doing things that are going to bring the church into disrepute, which might, that's at least what Dalvis says, that, okay. um, that the reason why Paul was against it is not in principle that it's wrong for you to marry someone who was related to you as a stepmother before your conversion. Um, that would be okay. But if you do that, you're going to give the Gentiles the wrong idea about Christianity, that, that we're this pervert cult that countenances incest. Um, so I don't know if I believe that part about him. Yeah. It doesn't seem to me that Paul normally cares too much what the pagan world thinks about Christian right. sexual morality. Um, but that's Dalvis' position. However, I, I agree with you that the plausibility of it, what, what makes it uh, likely is that there's all the difference in the world, Dalvis says, between mere naughtiness, right? The sort of thing that we see in pride parades mm-hmm. today, where all the perverts put on their leather kink and go, um, rubbing their perversion in everybody's faces, yeah. being puffed up about it like that. But that's not, oh, we acknowledge Christian sexual morality and it has given us the freedom to do that. That's not what they're saying. Right? They, 
they're against the church's sexual morality. Right. Um, they're, right. they're delighting in their sexual perversion. Right. Whereas this seems to me, this this guy in First Corinthians five seems to me to be proud, not in the modern rainbow flag sense of pride, but because he thinks that this is freedom he has in Christ, and it's mm. a badge. It's a badge of his conversion and new creation. Mm. Um, so that's. Uh, you know, it seems to have been a, a matter of boasting, not just on the part of the man who has his father's wife, but on the part of the whole community. And in verse six, your boasting, plural, your plural, y'all's boasting is not good. Um, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So you need to get rid of this guy because he is committing pornea. Um, and uh, you need to purge sexual immorality out of the church. All right, so back we go to chapter seven again. How does this then apply um, to the question of divorce and um, letting the unbeliever go and the, um, the matter of the children being clean, right? Mm. So um, the, the first difficult verse the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband in 714. Um, that gets cleared up, I think, in a very elegant way. Dalba says, New Testament scholars have enormous difficulty infusing any measure of meaning into this word hegiastai, sanctified. The various conjectures often then become bases for more general theories about Paul's concept of holiness. All this must be jettisoned. It's all nonsense. Get rid of it. No, here's the right explanation. Paul explains, and this is the thing I'm most convinced of, of the, okay. the various aspects of Paul's explanation. This is the one I would put a lot of good money on. Okay. He explains a Mishnah, rabbinic law from the 200s AD and earlier, okay, collection up to 215 or so. The Mishnah's tractate on marriage, with all the rabbis' rulings and discussions about marriage, the title of the tragedy in, a, in, in Hebrew is Kiddushin, consecrations from Kadosh, holy, and, and Kiddush, to sanctify. So consecrations or sanctifications, and this is in fact the ordinary way that Jewish marriage is conceived of. To consecrate a woman to wife is to make her holy, special. Mm. Belonging, belonging exclusively to her husband, right? even as Israel belongs exclusively to the Lord, to Yahweh. Um, the, the marital imagery that Paul says uh, in Ephesians is about Christ and the church has always been about Yahweh and his bride, Israel, whom he takes under his marriage chuppah, his marriage canopy at Mount Sinai, and makes his wife. So the verb kidesh means to consecrate to wife, uh, and that's also the formula when you're getting married. With this ring, I consecrate you mm. to myself. So we don't have to worry about what kind of sanctification is meant here. It's not talking about holy behavior or um, Christian sanctification. It's talking about actually belonging to a husband or wife. In other words, really being married. And that, of course, raises the question of um, 
how. Now, they didn't redo the marriage ceremony, right? So how, how is there um, a new marriage constituted? If the old marriage disappeared because one of the, the spouses died and was born again in Christian conversion and baptism, then how's the how's the marriage reconstituted so that they're really married? That that's what sanctified means. Um, and the answer is that in um, in that very tractate, Kiddushin, we have discussion uh, by the rabbis about how you can consecrate a marriage. How can you contract a marriage? There are basically three ways. You can do it by contract, where you draw up a ketuvah. Um, you can do it by gift. And then, of course, the rabbis are not content with any kind of vagueness, so they, they have to niggle and debate about how big does the gift have to be. And ultimately, they settle on any, any item worth at least a peruta, which is like an ancient Jewish coin, maybe the, the value of a dime. Really? <laughs> so if you give someone a dime, you can marry them. Um, and that transfer of property affects the marriage. Um, and then the third way, which is the one Dalbit thinks is at work here, is marriage by intercourse. Um, that just sleeping with somebody affects a one flesh union, affects a marriage. It's not a good way to get married. The rabbis very much frown upon it. It's the, the method of marriage that scoundrels use. Um, you know, the, the sort of marriage also that gets enforced thereafter by a father-in-law with a shotgun. Hmm. Um, but it does seem to affect a marriage in the Bible. And there are two passages that I would adduce here. Um, one is concerning uh, the patriarch Jacob. He contracts with Laban um, to marry Rachel, right? And so presumably that's via dowry, you know, uh, bride price and so forth. He's got to work for seven years. So that's probably going to fall under contract and gift types of marriage. Sure. But we know how the story goes, right? He woke up in the morning and behold, it was Leah. Um, and then he's married and, to her. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, the, the pottery barn rule applies at that point, right? You own it. Um, so, and of course, there's steps taken to put all the rest of it in good order thereafter, work another seven years and fulfill her bridal week too. Um, and then the other passage I would urge us to consider is uh, Genesis 38 in the story of Tamar, where... We've got this, this woman, she's married to Judah's son Ur, and uh, he's wicked, so God kills him. We're not sure what his wickedness consisted of. And then um, he get, she gets married to uh, Judah's second son, Onan, in a, a leveret marriage. And so the first child of that union will belong to Ur, the dead husband, and will continue his line. And Onan's greedy, and he wants to be the firstborn now and get the firstborn's portion. And so he commits Onanism. We won't go into descriptions of that. Um, in order not to conceive a leveret marriage heir for his brother Ur. Um, 
Well, God didn't approve of that either, so he strikes Onan dead too. And at this point, Judah's looking around going, my goodness, this this woman is the Black Widow, and mm. she's got the, the kiss of death. Um, I'm danged if I'm going to give her to my third son. Um, and so he doesn't. And uh, she sees that his third son, Shelah, is fully grown and not given to her as a husband. And she decides to take matters into her own hands in Genesis 38. I was amused, by the way, that I had this big set of the Baker edition of Calvin's commentaries. Um, and they just leave this chapter out. It's just too really? naughty. Yeah, it's <laughs> naughty. Um, women, a woman dressing up as a prostitute and Onan is, and we can't have anybody. Nobody would want to preach on that anyway. Have you ever heard a sermon on Genesis 38? Anyway. Um, so maybe maybe that'll be my next, uh, the next uh, <laughs> 10 part go, series. Yeah, go for it. All scripture is. God breathed. Anyway, she very takes matters into her own hands and disguises herself as a prostitute. And she doesn't just go for the third son, who would be her normal lever at marriage partner. She goes for the father himself, Judah. And mm. um, he sleeps with her and thinks he's hired a prostitute, gives her his signet, his cord, and his staff as pledges to promise to give her um, a young kid of the goats, I think, was to promise, uh, which is kind of like giving her his driver's license, passport, and all of his major credit cards. Huh. And um, she's able to you know, leverage that into proving that he's the father of the twins that she then is pregnant with, Perez and Zara. And um, after that showdown, the trial happens and Judah is forced to admit that the child, the children, we should say, he doesn't know it's children yet, but that she's pregnant by him. He says, she is righteous rather than me. And, and then Genesis 38 tells us that, and he never knew her again. Well, why does it say that? Why would, I mean, this is probably that sexual sense of no, right? He never slept with her sure. again. Right. Um, why would he have? Well, because at this point, she hasn't just proved that the children are his. She has proved that he is legally obligated because he has contracted a marriage with her by sleeping with her. This, of course, is the difference between prostitutes and, and honest women, is that the prostitutes are not going to attempt to enforce a marriage. Um, they are sleeping with a series of men. And in Jewish law, they would they should be the wife of the first person who deflowered them, prostitute. Wow. Um, and the the immorality consists in him not acting as her husband, her not acting as his wife, and a whole series of men committing adultery with her in her trade as a prostitute. Um, the way to regularize things would be for her to live with the first man who had her. Um, and that seems to be what Tamar has enforced. She's not actually a prostitute. She is someone who has the receipts, so to speak, and is able to force Judah to take her into his household and provide for her as a wife, um, her clothing, her food. And normally, the third thing that a husband owes a wife is marital affection, um, sex. And uh, of course, she doesn't need that from him anymore. But probably neither of them wants it at this point. But that that is another instance I would submit of 
marriage by intercourse, um, informal marriage. Okay. So is that the, the so that's fascinating that the, uh, I mean, is that how we should view people who have premarital? <laughs> you know, I mean, this is the can of worms, but is, is well, that a, I know is that, that a biblical, um, know, or is that a I Jewish mean, I, kind of like? I would say I'm not a I'm not a medieval historian, but my understanding is this is also canon law. Um, and in the medieval period, it was enforced. So, for instance, one of my favorite novels is uh, Sigrid Unset's Kristen Lavin's Daughter. This is a fabulous story set in, um, I think it's 14th century medieval Norway. And it, it traces the life of uh, a medieval Norwegian girl from her youngest childhood up until her death as um, a grandmother. Uh, from the, the plague, the Black Death comes to Norway and she is carried away with it along with much of her family. Um, but in the course, I mean, it's a very, in many ways, a very beautifully told novel. I recommend it to everybody. Um, once it was a Nobel Prize winner. Uh, mm. But it's also in many ways a <laughs> depressing novel, especially the beginnings of it. Um, the self-centered narcissism and um, sinfulness of the characters uh, is magnified and and the central character Kristen makes some really bad decisions she falls in love with a a man who is distinctly unworthy mm. uh, of her affection and sleeps with him and it comes out and one of the the priests the priesthood and the medieval clergy occupy a very heroic role in this book the uh, onset was a a convert from Lutheranism to Roman Catholicism, and she casts the medieval uh, Roman Catholic Church in a, a very, maybe even a rosy light, but a heroic light. And um, the priest tells Kristen, well, you slept with this man. I cannot lawfully let you marry anyone else. Mm. And so effectively, you've contracted a marriage. You either marry him or you stay single. Um, you're not allowed to marry anyone else. Uh, so, you you know, I would encourage you to get one of the other Davenant Institute instructors to um, <laughs> give you some more information on medieval marriage, can, you know, canon law about marriage. But I suspect that that is the case, um, that that's how, how it was ruled. Mm. And of course, we think also of um, Henry VIII and his six wives. Um, if you If you trace... And he, he petitioned for an annulment first, right? You're not allowed to marry, you're not allowed to just divorce somebody. Um, with with Christ's ban on divorce, um, you have to prove that there was no real marriage in the first place. Um, and one of the ways to prove that, and this is um, Henry's claim, is um, that his first marriage was fruitless and accursed because. Um, she had belonged to his to to a relation of his, mm. and therefore it wasn't lawful for him to have her. And in fact, it would constitute cornea. And but, so, but go ahead. How does that work with multiple wives and some of the, like the patriarchs? And when would it mean that only the first wife is? Because I mean, with Jacob and Leah, you know, he's could he in any sense well, be truly yeah. married to Rachel? I mean, if he slept with Leah first. Remember that there's provision for polygamy in the Old Testament. Um, huh. So the the issue 
I mean, Jesus grants that Moses permitted you to divorce your wives as a concession to the hardness of your hearts. But we want to get beyond that to the original creational intent, which is that a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Mm-hmm. They shall become one flesh. So that there's an ontological change. Um, there's a, a reality to marriage that is objective. It's not, uh, it's not to be dissolved by man if it's been established by God. Uh, but that is a change. Uh, Christian for lack of a better term, Christian halakha, and legal decisions about how the Bible is to be applied mm-hmm. um, in practical life, Christian halakha is more severe than um, Jewish halakha about divorce. Um, and in a, we need to remember Jesus' disciples' response to him saying that Whoever divorces his wife causes her to commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery with her. They're astonished. Remember, mm-hmm. they, they, don't, they don't say, well, oh, okay, Jesus, as long as I can divorce her, if she does something really bad. Right? And nowadays, I think we're all familiar with the sort of classical Christian grounds for divorce. Yeah. It's like, Abuse, abandonment, adultery. I don't know if there might be some yeah. others that probably start with A. Um, and I I just can't see how that accounts for the way Jesus' disciples react to his divorce teaching. So that the concession no longer applies. Well, uh, they just say if that's the way it is between a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. My goodness, Jesus, you're saying there's no way to get out of it? Um, we better steer clear. So, so Jesus would be saying there's no way anymore. There was a concession, but that's not um, a concession anymore. <laughs> is that a whole other can of worms? Yeah, it is a big can of worms. We can get into it a little bit. I mean, uh, in, I think in, don't quote me on this. I'm not, I'm talking off yeah. the top of my head, but yeah. I think it's in Mark's gospel there's no provision for apart from porneia. In Matthew's gospel, I think it says, whoever divorces wife apart from porneia causes to commit adultery. So there's this exception for sexual immorality. This is probably translating the Hebrew zenut. Um, Zenut is an abstract noun from zona, prostitute, or Mm -hmm. sexually immoral harlot, sexually immoral woman. Um, so that's the grounds, some sort of sexual morality, and we can debate about what that is. There's a large debate in the scholarship about what is the real range of porneia in right. the New Testament. Sometimes it is a narrower range. Sometimes it's a technical term for incest. Mm. And you can't marry that woman because that would be porneia for you to marry her. And so that would be a good grounds for dissolving that union, recognizing that it was never legal in the first place. Um, and, and so some people see that as the Matthean exception for Pornea. The only way okay. that you can get divorced, and it isn't really divorce, it's annulment in Catholic theology, um, is if you can show that the marriage wasn't real or that that person wasn't eligible to be married to you or that you were within forbidden degrees of consanguinity. Um, 
all of these would be grounds for annulment or never consummated. Um, if the marriage is not consummated. And would, would these have been the same standards for Moses' certificate of divorce? Um, when Moses commands, I mean, when the Torah commands that the husband should issue, yeah. could give her a certificate of divorce. Of divorce yeah. Right. Uh, I, well, I always, yeah. That, the man to read on this is David Instone Brewer. He has a book on, um, I forget what the title is. It's like Marriage and Divorce in, in the okay. New Testament or something like that. But um, the, the question that is raised to Jesus is put to him by the Pharisees. Um, Rabbi, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Um, and Instone Brewer argues that that is a reference to a contemporary or recent debate within Pharisee Judaism um, between the schools of Hillel and Shammai. Mm -hmm. um, and that, uh, so the, the verse in question is Matthew 19, 3. Um, and the phrase, the particular phrase, so there came to him Pharisees. So this is not the Sadducees. They're not interested in this divorce question. It's not Herodians. It's, it's Pharisees. It's an mm -hmm. intramural Pharisee debate. Testing him by putting to him one of their favorite legal questions. And we see them do this frequently. Right? What's the great commandment in the Torah? Well, it's something that we debate a lot. So mm -hmm. um, we've got, uh, uh, it's kind of like, chess masters right right oh we, we recognize this gambit and we know that it's made in four what are you going to do um jesus what's your move um, right. so we can catch catch him and show that he made a big blunder and contradicted the torah and therefore we know he's not a legit teacher so that's what they're attempting to do they're trying to trap him in his words uh saying is it possible axsd is it is it lawful is it authorized is it legal almost Accessory for a man to divorce, so she's in the technical term for divorce again that we saw in First Corinthians 7 to apoluo, set to loosen away, dissolve the marriage, to uh, divorce his wife, katapasan aitian, on every ground or for any cause. Um, for any cause is how Instone Brewer translates it, and, and so I think it's the I think it's the Hillelites who are the looser party. Um, mm. I can't keep them straight. I don't remember. But uh, you consult Instone Brewer's book. One of the two Pharisee factions holds to a very loose doctrine of divorce. In other words, husbands can divorce their wives for any reason whatsoever. Um, she burned the toast. Divorce her. Yeah. Right? You don't like how she folded your shirt? Divorce her. Um, she's earning more money than you? Divorce her. Um, any cause. So that's any cause, divorce. Okay. Um, and, and that's kind of a reference to a phrase in um, Deuteronomy 24, um, where we get the command about um, putting a bill of divorce or a, um, yeah that's one where you, you can't remarry your first husband or something like that if, if he well, sends you no, away Deuteronomy 24 1 yeah and later it goes um, oh, okay but of, of course this is also just verse 1 
clearly indicates there's going to be divorcing happening, right? And here's how you do it. You got to give a certificate of divorce. And it includes um, this phrase, um, if if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency Mm. in her. Um, And um, the the Hebrew says, uh, he has found in her uncleanness of a thing, uh, um, indecency of a thing, or some matter of, a, of, uh, of indecency. And so how do you phrase, how do you put the emphasis on that phrase? Is it some matter of uncleanness or indecency? Then you can only divorce for sexual offenses, perhaps. So that's the stronger and more stringent doctrine, perhaps the Shammai Pharisees hold that, um, very limited grounds for divorce. And then the other faction, I think it's the Hillelites say, no, it's <laughs> uncleanness of anything, like anything he doesn't like. Um, so very loose doctrine of divorce. Uh, that's what they're fishing for when they come and ask Jesus, is it lawful to divorce your wife on for every cause or any cause? Um, and he, they're expecting him to slice and dice and play casuistry games with them, appeal to particular phrases in the Torah, and they probably expect Deuteronomy 24. They expect him to give one of the, the Pharisees answers and um, explain his jurisprudence uh, regarding Deuteronomy 24. And he doesn't play their game. He makes an end run around it and goes back to the creation and the original divine intent for marriage um, not the stopgap measure or the provision, uh, the pis aller, um, uh, sort of second best. Uh, okay, if you can't be married and be faithful, then and people are going to cheat and be abusive, and we're going to have, and, and it's going to be worse to stay married than fine. We'll provide this measure, bills of divorce. Um, which is for the for the wife's benefit. Right? I mean, she can get remarried. Um, it's a certificate saying, oh, wait, wait, aren't you married to him? No, I've got this certificate from him that says I'm not married to him anymore, so I can marry someone else now. Um, that's the idea. And then, of course, it does go on in Deuteronomy 24 to talk about, well, I don't know, she married somebody else, and then he gave her a certificate of yeah. divorce, divorce too. She can't go back to the first husband because that would be some sort of, you know, that opens the door for legalized Divorce as a means of adultery, basically, which I think I've heard of this in in um, certain abuses of Islamic law. Don't get me mm. wrong. I'm not saying that Islam as a whole tolerates this. I'm sure they don't. But in, in some circumstances, I think um, this was a way of operating a brothel and prostituting women mm. is that you you marry them to the customer, the John, who wants to sleep with him, marry them for an hour. Okay, and then he divorces her and he marry the next person. That, not allowed um, under, under rabbinic law. 